My name's Randy. Glad to be with you all. Um, every day we're aware of crises around us, sometimes with projectors, sometimes in our lives, sometimes with our cars, things bubbling out of their front ends. My daughter going, Daddy, what's this? Um, Sometimes we're faced ourselves with those crises. We live in a world that on one hand appears to be spinning out of control, and then on the other hand, for those of us who know and love God, that we're able to see him in those circumstances of our world and in our lives. doesn't always go the way we would think was best, but it's funny how it goes. As a matter of fact, as we consider the challenges that we face in the world and in our lives, there is a very helpful verse that many of us would be able to quote, I suspect, from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says this. It says, we know, we know, not we hope, we think maybe, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, I, I, I thought I, when I pulled this up yesterday, I thought I remembered it saying in God, uh, we know that God um, facilitates, yes, we, the God of the Holy Spirit was back there as well today, overcoming the spirit of projectors. What is it, David? What's, how, how's that verse normally? Is that what you all normal? Okay. So... But this word causes stuck out at me personally. And so I'm, I'm using my, my, t- my Greek tools and my tools that I have and stuff like that. I did have a year of Greek um, in seminary and can mess around with it a little bit. Obviously, I can't do all that I could then. But, um, and sure enough, that word causes is in there. And I, it just stuck out at me that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And, and what I hear there, or what I heard again yesterday, was that no matter what happens to us, our loved ones, or the economy, God will cause things to work together for our good and for the good of those that we love and care for. And that, that really is an incredibly comforting promise. But it's not automatic. We keep bumping into these verses in the last few weeks. Oh my gosh, there's... You know, there's contingencies here. There's, uh, there's situations. It's not automatic. It has conditions. And the, condi- the first condition that identifies it says it is applicable to those who love God. Well, that should, that should make us kind of sit up in our chairs for a minute and just kind of say, okay, I like the end result. That, that idea is really cool, all things working together for good. I like that a lot. But there is a front end. And the front end is that we need to love God. So it's important, I think, for us to grasp what does that look like? What does it mean? Does it mean to love God that I think he's a nice guy and I'm glad he's around? You know, if I told my wife, you know, honey, I really love you. You're really nice. I'm glad that, you know, we get to see each other every once in a while. I love you. Or... uh, Oh, I love eating ice cream. I mean, what does it mean? Right? I mean, we just, we, I, I think especially as followers of Christ, those who are familiar with the scriptures in the Bible, of course I love God. Yeah, I love God. 
I love my family. I love my dog. I'm a Christian. Isn't that automatic? But the scriptures are not real automatic about that. When we love something, our affections, our emotions become involved. Our, our whole being becomes involved. If we love a person, <clears throat> we don't just want to you know, greet them every once in a while. We want to be with them all the time. We want to talk with them. We want to spend time with them. If it's a place <clears throat> excuse me, that we love, we, we want to go there. We want to we hang out. If it's food that we love, well, of course, we want to eat it as often as possible. One way we identify if we love something is to notice what is it that we're spending our time thinking about, wishing for, craving, longing for. Another way is to pay attention to what we spend our discretionary time on. Now, I'm confident that 80% of you say I have no discretionary time. But I beg to differ. We all have discretionary time. We have a number of hours in the day. We all have the same. I wish I had different than you or you had different than me, but it's not. We all have the same number of hours, and we all have discretionary time. Now, we may have less of it or more of it than others. No problem. Understand that. But, you know, when... Um, yeah, never mind. Anyway, we do. I won't spend our time on there. That isn't my main point. But how we spend that discretionary time should probably be pretty significantly indicative of what we love. Now, again, I say discretionary because, hey, we all have to be at work. I'm, you know, at work, travel time and work is a minimum of 50 hours a week for me. I work for a Christian ministry. I'm a business manager for them. And then I serve uh, and, and work with our church, and that involves hours uh, that require my time. And so my discretionary time is less. But that's true for all of us. But I have some almost every day. Another way that we, pay, we can identify what it is that we love is, of course, to pay attention to how we spend our discretionary money. And again, some of you might say, I don't have any discretionary money. But again, I would beg to differ with you. It may only be 10 bucks a month, but you spend money. Whether you have it or not, spend money as if it's discretionary. Am I not correct? It may be minimal, you, you know, you may be really conservative and do really, really well. But then, of course, you know, my community group uh, went to 31 Flavors on, on, Tuesday, on Wednesday night because they had 31 cent ice cones. And uh, some of my people, we have a whole bunch of uh, kids that are guests in our group, and we kind of divide, divided them up. And so different ones bought ice creams. I mean, I bought ice cream for four people, right? 31 Flavors, fairly decent. I know it's not Haagen-Dazs and, you know, all the marble slab and all that, but $3.35. That's pretty good. Four people. Three of those people had three scoops each. And the other one, you know, probably saved me all the money. They only had one. We have discretionary elements to our lives. And what we love, we will involve ourselves with. What we love takes precedence in our lives. And this verse says that God will cause things to come of everything. He will cause good things to come of everything that happens to us if we love him. But there is also this other element, which is like all lovers, God is not satisfied to be one love among many. God wants to be our first love. 
first over our time, our relationships, our career, our money, our thoughts, our goals, our use of the Internet, what we watch, read, listen to, everything. The first commandment highlights this very, very, very clearly. God requires that he be first. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 through 5, also, of course, in Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God. And, of course, right there, that word, Lord your God, that should catch us right attention. You know, I'm your master. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous lover, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Now, while there are not very many people today, I think, who bow down and worship golden calves or totem poles or the rain god, I would suggest that idolatry is still very alive and well in our world today. Some of the idols are still made out of metal. A little plastic thrown in these days. It's a little cheaper than metal. But instead of the shape of cows, some of these idols now are in the shape of cars, jewelry, cell phones. Some are... Some idols are still made out of wood, but instead of totem poles, they're now in the shape of houses, books, and money, which happens to be made from wood, right? Anybody, right? Paper? I mean, yeah, then there's the metal part. There's metal and wood, and okay. And, and we have begun discussing, looking at, thinking about, talking about this topic of money, which is probably one of the most significant idols or gods that people struggle with today. Ambrose Bierce, an American writer and a satirist from the early 1900s, said this, Mammon is the god of the world's leading religion. Y'all get that? Mammon is the god of the world's leading religion. As a result of the challenge that we all are facing today with money, uh, our government, the current economic crisis, uh, God speaking through prayer to our church board, for the next couple of months we're going to be looking at seven biblical financial building blocks that are part of what I'm calling God's biblical bailout package. So, uh, and uh, David uh, Danley pointed out to me last week that the, um, one of the gods of the Canaanites that the Israelites struggled with uh, was the god Baal. It's spelled B-A-A-L, and it, when it is incorrectly pronounced, we pronounce it Baal. Out. So we've got to get Baal out of our lives. Anyway, okay. <clears throat> Thank you, David, for that. It was not mine. All right, so we're going to be continuing this week looking at the first truth, the first building block, which is to recognize and renounce the spirit of mammon. Before we go there, let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you're not surprised by our world circumstances. You're not surprised by the circumstances that we face in our lives. 
and you are concerned. You're concerned, you're sad, and you want things to be different. That's why you sent your son. So I welcome you now in this time to help us uh, grasp, understand, consider some of these issues that we face in the area of money that we could grapple with this, that we wouldn't just simply pass it off as, well, those are Randy's ideas or, hmm, that's interesting, and then walk away, but that we would really pray and ask you, you know, what, what are you telling us? What, what's your heart in this? What can I walk away with that would transform my life and bring it into that place of fullness and abundance that you desire for us? Give us ears to hear, as Jesus prayed at times, and eyes to see. Enable me to um, speak clearly, uh, to engage, to lead well this time. Um, and for our guests especially, I pray that you would be uh, with them and that you would be very present ministering to their needs today. In Jesus' name. Hey, guys, is the AC on and low enough? Okay. I haven't been this warm. And Claire, I could really use some water. Do you get any more? Cool. Okay. Last week, I introduced the uh, topic of the spirit of mammon by looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, which has its parallel in Luke 16, 13, which we're going to look at again at the end. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammonos. Now, I, I last week and this week again have maintained the uh, Greek transliteration for us to be able to see its context here. Gosh. Most English Bible uh, translations translate this word Mammonos um, as either mam- money or wealth. And I spent more time working on that. Um, one of my daughters actually just raised the question to me last week. feels like we just kind of jumped there pretty quickly. So I did some more work on it. And um, as I uh, walked through that uh, process, um, have to again wrestle with what I communicated last week, and that is that that, that word is not clearly understood. It is only used the four times um, in the New Testament. Um, all, of, all four of which are on the lips of Jesus. One here in Matthew, three all in the same chapter in Luke 16, which we are going to spend some time with today. And while absolutely it is legitimate to translate the word mammonus as money or wealth, as it is, a, a challenge we face is the way Jesus talks about this thing that he calls mammon. He is uh, pulling out from history a word Rather than using the current word of the day, it's in the. I, I looked. I was looking at money and wealth and riches, other other places, other Greek words where those are used, and they're scattered throughout even the ministry and the talks of Jesus. He used money, the normal, you know, Hebraic Aramaic way of using that many times, but here in these contexts, he chose a different word. 
And one of the challenges here is the way Jesus describes this distinction, this contrast between God and mammon is significant for us to wrestle with. What is it that he's really talking about? I mentioned last week that um, if mammon is synonymous with money or wealth, then the appropriate conclusion has to be from Jesus' words here that Christians should totally renounce and have nothing to do with money or wealth. Because that's what Jesus says our attitude should be. But that's not possible. I mean, it might be possible, you know, get enough stuff gathered together and go live in a cave, you know, somewhere and, uh, and do it. But, but if we're going to be in the world but not of the world, it is a, a mechanism. And I'm going to spend, I, I am going to get to actually talking a little bit more about money as money, since we're talking about money. Um, but I'm, I'm still working on mammon this week. Uh, again, I would just highlight that uh, what the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament said, uh, very reputable Greek language, and, and some of you were uh, just like, why did you use those, those texts? Well, I use those, <laughs> those quotes because they help us recognize that even the greatest, the deepest scholars, those who have put together these tools for us, aren't sure what it means. The uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament said, the Greek word mammonus seems to, seems to come from an Aramaic noun, which most, most probably derives from the word mene, mame, excuse me. And, uh, you know, again, some of you said that was, that's just really weird. But Jesus here, again, is choosing a word that isn't clear for a purpose. Now, we have to somewhat speculate from that. We're left to wrestle with the text, wrestle with the terms, do the best work we can, and then draw a conclusion. And so I am, I'm way okay with any of you, you know, looking through, wrestling through, going back to the tools yourselves or getting some help, whatever it takes, for you to conclude something different than I'm concluding. We're, that's way okay. But as your pastor and as one who has been doing this for a long time and has some background in studies and wrestling through these things, I believe that these conclusions that I'm proposing are, are fairly legitimate. Um, again, I suggested, very significant to me, maybe not to you, but that, that uh, New Testament uh, TDNT goes on to say that the Aramaic word mame means that in which one trusts. So if we, just, if we throw out money and wealth as its definition and simply fall to Jesus was saying, you, you cannot love God, you cannot put your trust in God in something else doesn't work. All right, we could go there. That would be another legitimate way to go. But beyond that, I would advocate that Jesus meant more than that. He meant more than money. He meant more than wealth. He even meant more than just what's happening in our heart. See, something in which we trust has to do with us, where I'm placing my trust. And, and, and we're involved, no question about it. But I believe that Jesus is advocating that there is an entity, a spirit that exists in the heavenly realm which ancient peoples had worshipped as a god of, or a deity of finance. And one of, the one of the reasons that we're challenged with this is, again, I suggested last week, because in our Western culture we have concluded that the idea of demons, spirits, angels, and even God, in many circles, are not rational, and that those sections of the Bible are insignificant, irrelevant, because they're not true. There isn't such a thing as spiritual beings. Now, as... as 
biblical Christians, that one's hard to swallow. But I tell you, it's impacting you. If what Paul says in Ephesians 6 is true, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, then, friends, everywhere we go where Satan and the world systems are at work, we're battling more than just what's happening inside us. You know, driving through a section of town as a man where there are billboards and signs and clubs. I remember when I first moved here down by Starcrest. There's those two clubs right across, across the 410 from each other. I'd be driving along and bing, my head would come up. You know, I'm just driving. Bing, I'm looking right at their sign. What is that? I'm fine. I'm not being bothered by those things. But I would advocate that there's a presence, there's a demonic influence that's around that kind of thing. And I think most of us go, okay. But I'm going to say it's not just in that arena. It's in many, if not most, arenas. Jesus cast, I said this last week, you guys got all upset with me. Jesus cast a thousand demons out of one guy. They went into the pigs and died, right? The pigs died. Where'd the demons go? We don't know. I, I mean, they could be chained in, in hell now because Jesus did the right thing. I, I don't know. But, friends, there are still demons around. And there are demons bothering us. And I think we, we need to be thoughtful. See, there they are again. Demons of the sound systems. Paul identifies numerous kinds of spiritual entities here. He doesn't just say, and our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan. That's what we typically go to. Typically, we've been taught that our enemy is Satan, an entity. But come on, a third of the angels fell with him. How many is that? We don't know. Mucho. More than a thousand. (laughs) Yeah, see, there's only really a thousand released. They're still just meandering around trying to find... Yeah, No, no, no. I don't think it's that way. I would contend that the mammon that Jesus is speaking of fits Paul's categories here of cosmic power, of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that is influencing the hearts of humankind to love and serve money in this physical realm. And if that's true, then Jesus was not contrasting the love of an inanimate physical object called money to God, but was contrasting a spiritual force, an entity, a being, and God. In the same way that God desires our love and service, so does the spirit of mammon. Jesus, as God wants to be our master, so mammon wants to be our master. Mammon, then, I would say, is an evil cosmic power, a demonic spiritual force that resides in the heavenly realm, not in this physical, but has implications and impact to influence in the physical realm the hearts and minds of humankind to love and serve money here in this physical realm. I suggested last week that money in and of itself is impotent. It is, it is just a piece of paper. 
or it is just a piece of metal. As were the idols of old. But behind those idols of old were spiritual forces in the heavenly places whose attempt was to get the Israelites to no longer love God, but to love other gods, to turn from him. Most people, including Christians, again, I suggest, believe that, that somehow money has power. We, we, we talk about that. The almighty daughter, dollar I mentioned last week. The almighty daughter. I've got five of them. So I'm going to, rec- I'm going to again, suggest here, this is, this is what I'm understanding from the text. This is what I'm seeing. And, and at whatever degree you're, you can walk with me in this or not, to simply step back and say, yeah, there are evil influences in this world, and, and surely it uses, uh, some of them are using money uh, in, in a means, in a way, to entice us and to lure us away from God. At the very least, we can go there, and I would hope you can go further than that. Um, the second section we touched on last week, and just very quickly, uh, the intent of the spirit of mammon, the purpose of the spiritual power called mammon, like every other spirit in Satan's kingdom, is to turn the hearts and minds of people away from God and, if possible, to draw worship unto itself. In Matthew 6:24, Luke 6:13, Jesus raises this as a conflict of love, loyalty, and service between God and another entity. If you love one, you will hate the other. If you're loyal to one, you'll despise the other. And if you serve one, you cannot serve the other. And that's just a huge implication. Even if all you do is put money in there and, and walk away and don't hear anything else I'm going to talk about over the next few weeks, these other building blocks. If you just simply recognize that money, if you want to call it a piece of paper, that's fine. But money, Jesus is saying, has the power for and the ability to cause you, whatever that mammon thing is, to serve it. So when you go off to work, are you serving God? Is he your master or is that paycheck? When you're at the hospital in emergency room with one of your children and you're facing the potential here for medical bills, maybe it's your own, your own self, you're older like me. Are you trusting in God? Or are you trusting in the ability of your medical insurance company to cover the costs? What is it that we trust in? At the very least, that's what Jesus is highlighting. Okay, questions. I mentioned last week I want to make this slightly more interactive. Um, I want to pause now. We're little enough. We're small congregation. I just want to give you questions, interactions. Clear and succinct, though. No, no preaching. No sermons. I'm doing that. Um, but if, if, if you would like to, to raise a question, clarify something I'm, I'm saying up to this point, that's all pretty much review, and then we're going to move into new material. I had mentioned before last week, you're welcome to send me emails in advance. I'll attempt to address concerns, issues, uh, forward some material to you perhaps. Anybody want to try one now? I looked at that yesterday, but I don't recollect. I'm sorry. But I can, I can get that for you. And I could give you a list of scripture verses where that's used, that the normal word for money or wealth. I can do that for you because it's very clearly a distinction. Moolah. 
dinero. Please, please speak up. It is, I have a slight hearing loss. what I recollect is he says don't take any money with you don't take a purse yeah the that passage I'll, I'll work on that and get back to you on that 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 passage is within a prophetic um, section of material the second one I'm not positive that's connected to the sending of the 70 I am recollecting that and there is about us talking about a sword <coughs> Right. I'll work on that. That's good. If you can maybe remind me by email, that would be helpful to me, or I see you occasionally. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he does. So maybe what I can do is put together, um, maybe I can have a helper, uh, put together some uh, scripture references with their, their various Greek words with the normal Suggested, the appropriate, you know, suggested meanings that's normal um, so that you can look at some of those. That is something that's very cool in my tools. I have the ability to click on a Greek word and see all of the passages where that Greek word is used rather than a typical English, English, uh, what do we call those things? Lexicon where you would say, okay, show me all all the English verses where the word money is used. Well, that won't make the distinction of the different Greek words. So a very cool uh, tool in, in, my, in my tool bag is this ability to click on the Greek word and see all the Greek. Uh, and I, that's what I did. I did work that, that way yesterday. Mariana? Um, I, I believe that that's going to come in the realm of stewardship and management. Um, there are numerous passages. It's very, very clear that Jesus says we are to be responsible with that which is not ours. In fact, if we get to it, and I hope we do, we're going to work on we're going to work in groups on on a passage that that incorporates that thought. But um, again, we're we're just dealing right at the moment on somewhat of the front end here. We're going to, there's a whole lesson on who is our source, which we'll touch more in-depthly on that, and then later the, the stewardship management uh, piece as well. So I agree that that is, you know, again, it's how, do, how do you live in the world and not of it? Just one second. How do you live in the world and not of it? That, that challenge of, of trusting God, seeking him first, you know, uh, don't worrying about my house or my bills or, you know, because the sparrow, and we're going to touch on that uh, in a couple of weeks when we get to sparrow faith. But uh, I, th- I think there's more where we're going to go with that. And it is a wrestling match, and I think it's one worthy of concern and, and thinking about. Claire? Okay. Uh, she raised the suggestion that the biblical understanding of the word faith is not just belief. I've highlighted this for dozens. It's a passion area of mine. Faith is not just belief. Faith is, faith is belief and action. 
It, it, it has to include both of those. You look at all the, you know, the James passages, but I mean, it's all over there, all over the scriptures. That, um, and, and we've missed the mark a little bit on, on faith. So what Claire is saying then is as, as faith requires belief and then action, so would trusting God uh, require taking some actions. It isn't just simply a, a, a function of faith. I'm trusting God. So we don't go to work. We you know, don't fix our car. Um, I mean, we can pray for God to fix our cars and uh, you know, to help us. We can pray and invite all those things. But we do live in the world. And in this world, we will have trouble. Things will bubble out of our engine compartments at times. One more. Um, I don't. I don't remember. We're going to work on Luke 16 today, though, which is uh, more expressive. Um, I don't know if I'm going there with Matthew 6 or not. Might be a good exercise again for us to do together in groups or something, or in small groups or something. We could work on that. Um, not today for sure. Okay. Um, a second fairly significant element of this spirit of Mammon if that's what we're dealing with, is that like other spiritual, um, demonic spiritual entities, it doesn't always operate alone. In fact, um, they like coming at us in teams. You know, somebody pins this hand down while somebody pins the other one. Or gangs, thousand of them at one, you know, he, he probably didn't get the thousand at one time. And then, um, anyway... So uh, one of the significant areas where mammon partners is um, with what is called iniquity. Um, The spirit of mammon is a driving, compelling force, an external force in the lives of non-Christians and Christians alike. But the power and spirit of mammon also partners with iniquity that is at work in a person's life. And when that happens, the deception and the control that that spirit brings is stronger and more compelling. And so we're going to spend uh, some time here in Acts chapter 8, if you want to turn there. We're going to look at a biblical example where uh, clearly um, there is this spiritual influence of mammon at work, but also this issue of iniquity. And then I'm going to talk a little about why that's significant. So Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read most of the chapter, but not all at one time. I'm going to start with verse 9. Again, it's a passage. You can go back here and spend some time uh, in this whole chapter. It would be helpful, I suspect. But for us this morning, starting at verse eight, 9 in chapter 8 of Acts. <clears throat> in the uh, city of Samaria, there was a man named Simon. This is not Simon Peter. It's a different Simon. He had formerly practiced magic arts in the city to the utter amazement of the Samaritan nation, claiming that he himself was an extraordinary and distinguished person. They all paid earnest attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is that exhibition of the power of God, which is called great. So here, this is a Greek city. Well, not Greek. Samaria is... 
It's not Hebrew. It's not Jewish. It's the Samaritans. It's a mixed group. They're influenced a lot by the, the culture. They're not uh, Jews. And, and they're influenced by the forces and the powers around them. And th- they think this guy is one of those. He's, he's somebody big, somebody significant. Um, they were attentive and made much of him because for a long time he had amazed and bewildered and dazzled them with his skill in magic arts. Not like Dave Alter, our own uh, magician illusionist, uh, but someone who also brought with him the occult practices. Um, in this case, Mr. Simon did. But when they believed, they, this, the Samaritans, believed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ as Philip preached it, they were baptized, both men and women, Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, devoted himself to constantly being with Philip. Here's this guy who has been connected to, empowered by occult and demonic powers. He now sees Philip. He somehow is, um, is, is caught under the recognition of the true God and of what Philip is saying. And he is... He does believe, according to the text, and is baptized. So he is a believer. But all his critters haven't been dealt with yet, as we'll see in a minute. Seeing the signs and miracles of great power which were being performed, Simon was utterly amazed. So he is in awe of this real deal, this this power of God thing, that he knows compared to what he has experienced is significantly more than what he has experienced. So in this passage, we're introduced to Simon. He is skilled in magic arts, the occult. He becomes a believer. He's baptized. He's in awe of the signs and wonders that are happening through Philip, the healings. Um, so he's, he's following Philip. He's, he's now a follower of Christ and of Philip. And while that is happening, days, weeks, months, were not, it doesn't say, Peter and John are sent from Jerusalem to help Philip in this evangelistic efforts, these crusades that are happening there. Um, Philip said, help, I need some help. Man, God's showing up over here. We need some more people to come. They come. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 18 starts this. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was imparted through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He brought money and offered it to them, saying, Grant me also this power and authority in order that anyone on whom I place my hands may also receive the Holy Spirit. Was he genuine? Yeah, he he just he's in awe. He's seeing the real deal. That's how I take the text again. You know, you guys are welcome to to see and grasp other things. I'm, I'm just working with the text as I understand them. And to me, this guy is, is not a real, real bad guy here. He, he wants to help people. He's, he's uh, recognized that what he had was limited, wasn't the right deal. But the only way he knows how to get it is to buy it, because that's how he bought all of his other skills and abilities. They pay for Dave, you bought magical tricks, right? Illusion tricks. He buys them. He sells them. It's okay. So did Simon. That's how they got their powers. They would go to a conference and, and learn new tricks, right? I don't know how it was done, but that, that's what he's familiar with. That's what he's always done. He buys those things. 
So he says, grant me this power. Peter says to him, destruction, overtake your money and you because you imagined you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is all wrong in God's sight. Yeah, that was a slap across the face at least. Peter is confronting a spirit of mammon that is influencing Simon's heart. There is a conflict of kingdoms here that Peter, through prophetic revelation, is recognizing as seeing and is taking action to, to speak against that kingdom realm of the spirit of mammon and of darkness. And, I'm, and I suspect that, that Simon just stumbled backwards. Just, you know, maybe even there was that power. If there was demonic influence, as we're suggesting there is in his life, then, then there's this, wrestle, this thing going on. His, I'm sure his, his body was freaking out. There's a conflict of kingdoms going on. Mammon wants to control and have power and authority through money, particularly it uses it through the actions of buying and selling. That is a part of the world system. world system is based on buying and selling. In its extreme case, that spirit manifests in taking and clutching. Right? Buying and selling becomes taking and hoarding. Clutching, grasping. What does the kingdom of God operate on? Receiving and giving. So we're talking about two different kingdoms, two different realms, two different ways, things. Does that mean we can't buy and sell? No. We just need to recognize that that's not God's kingdom when we buy and sell. That's somebody else's kingdom. That's Satan's kingdom. That's the spirit of mammon's realm. God deals with receiving and giving. And I tell you, if you look at passages, go back and just think through the various passages that have to do with giving or even receiving, you're going to find an understanding that I think will awaken in you about God's realms and the power there is in receiving and giving, just as there's power in buying and selling and uh, taking and clutching. So Simon is a believer. He's baptized. He probably has, I, you know, he, the laying on of hands and the baptism of the Spirit was occurring to all that. I suspect he received the Holy Spirit in his life. Doesn't say that, so I'm extrapolating. Um, but when he offers money to Peter to buy this power and authority, Peter looks him straight in the eyes and says, there's something wrong with your heart. Your heart. He doesn't say, I rebuke you, Spirit of Mammon, in the name of Jesus. He says, Simon, there's something wrong in your heart. Though a baptized, a sincere follower of Christ, the spirit of mammon has not been dealt with and its controlling influence in Simon's own soul, his own heart, his mind, will, and emotions. In that core of his human being, there is, there is a connection still between this demonic influence and his heart. The story goes on, uh, verse 22. Peter says to Simon, so repent. Turn, go another way, repent of this depravity and wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, this contriving thought and purpose of your heart may be removed and disregarded and forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in a bond forged by iniquity. Peter, operating in spiritual gifting and prophetic revelation, makes an incredible statement that Simon's heart is poisoned. Gall is, is the word. We, we have a gall bladder. I don't know why it's connected to poison, but it does, right? When it goes wrong, that's what it does. It, doesn't it? Yeah, it's one of the things. Sure, thanks, Eddie. I feel really affirmed. I believe, out of my limited understanding, gall of bitterness having to do with this poison idea, and other scriptures talking about bitterness and what it can do to us. It functions like a poison. Peter is not saying that Simon isn't a believer, simply that there are issues of the heart that needed to be dealt with. And there are in all of us. When we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, God often does incredible cleanup work. But then there are issues of the heart. There are issues of our affections that often require more time and more work to be able to deal with. Now, you may be thinking, okay, what in the world does this have to do with Simon asking to buy this power? Okay. Having previously, as I said before, operating in the world system, Simon bought and sold magic skills and power to expand his knowledge his ability to magic arts, and his financial status. He was a very well-to-do man. Seeing a new power that would add to the skill, he, he wants to buy it. But Peter then contrasts Simon's desire to buy it with the fact that it is a free gift. It's a gift. It's something we receive. It isn't something we can buy. It's something we give. It's not something we can sell. So Peter's just giving Simon a lesson in kingdoms contrasting buying and selling and receiving and giving. Buying and selling, these key elements of the, of the world's financial system are contrasted here. And the full significance of Simon's situa- situation, however, is revealed at the end of verse 23, where he says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in a bond forged by iniquity. What's a bond? It's an agreement, it's a a partnership, it's, it's a coming together of two things. The spirit of mammon and the influence of iniquity in Simon's heart are, are bound. Uh, it's the word chains. There's, there's a chain around you connected to the iniquity of your heart. Some translations say captive to sin, chains of sin, a prisoner of sin. The word translated iniquity there is also translated in other places, transgression, wickedness, unrighteousness, lawlessness, rebellion. It's a word used throughout the Bible as a force or power within the human heart that is opposed to God. We're not dealing with here now a spiritual entity that's outside of us. We're talking about a power that's within us. And I want to talk about that power now because it's significant here, I believe. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, the prophet makes a declaration that most scholars feel refers to Lucifer, Satan, in his state in heaven prior to the fall. Listen to these words from Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, chrysolite, 
moonstone, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. And worked in gold were your settings and your engravings. Those are just images and pictures of something that is incredibly gorgeous, according to the author. That, 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 that's what he's saying. Wow, this is, you were beautiful above anything earthly we could imagine. And, and again, we, scholars believe this is describing Lucifer. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. These um, settings and the, the beauty of, of uh, Lucifer. With an anointed cherub as guardian, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. When Satan showed up in the garden to tempt Eve, the fall of humankind involved more than just sin. It involved the iniquity of Satan that was welcomed and as a result became a part of our human soul. Iniquity is a driving force from within the human heart to rebel and to choose sin. There's a distinction in the scriptures between iniquity, sin, and sins. I'm only going to address the first two this morning. In Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus is prophetically spoken of here. And the author makes a distinction. And he says this, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, which is the word sins. Sin, not sins, is the word sin. He was pierced for our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Piercings. Interesting. Did a little work on that. We all like sheep have gone astray. That's rebellion. Each of us has turned to his own way. I'm going to do what is pleasing to me in my sight, not to God. No, I'm going to eat from the apple because I get to be like God. Rebellion. Choosing our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word translated translated transgressions is most often translated sin, New Testament, Old Testament. And in the New Testament, in Romans, that word transgressions is used, um, and the Greek word they use is to miss the mark. It's an archery term. Sin means to miss the mark. And Jesus was pierced or wounded for our sin. But he was crushed for our iniquity. Now, to make too much of a distinction here would go beyond what the text allows us and gives us information for. But for some reason, within the prophetic voice of Isaiah, he is uh, making a distinction. Wow, that demons are just all active today. I know. Jim, we lost lights. Is that? uh, Look at that. Operator error was not a demon. But Isaiah here makes this distinction between Jesus' piercings or woundings, the, the beatings, the whippings, and the crushing, which I'm led to imagine is the death blow. 
the, the crushing of, of the cross, that which killed him, as distinguished from that which wounded him. But again, we've got to be careful with here. But for some reason, there's a distinction there. There's also a distinction made by John. In 1 John 1, 9, a passage we're all very, very familiar with, John says, if we confess our sin, our transgressions, to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all iniquity. And you've never wondered why, what those two words mean. You just confess your sins because you think that's what I need to do and I'm going to get healed and it's good. But John felt it important to distinguish that as we confess our sin, that God deals with our sin, but he also deals with our iniquity. And iniquity requires, sin requires forgiveness, iniquity requires cleansing. Sin, I would suggest, Randy suggests, is error or failure to do what is right. And it requires forgiveness. Miss the mark. Almost kind of oops. But don't quote me on that, because everyone in the world will call me a heretic. Sin means miss the mark. Almost? Yeah, almost. No, it doesn't really mean that. And it requires, and Jesus was bruised for our sin, our missing the mark. Iniquity, however, is willful rebellion and it requires cleansing or purification and Jesus was crushed for our iniquity. Iniquity, I understand from the work that I've done, is willful rebellion. It represents a pattern of habitual sin, stronghold, a driving force within the human heart that is very often partnered with, bonded with, demonic influence. We talk about strongholds. Um, we talk about bondage. And in the vineyard, for us, that we, we're way okay with that, meaning a connection with demonic influence. I myself had demonic influence in my life for a bunch of years up until I was about 25 in the area of pornography. Shared that in... Detail in some settings and generally in many others. Um, and would advocate that that spiritual force, that demonic influence, has to be bonded with something in our life. An, a pattern, an iniquity, a willful choice. Not an oops, I missed the mark. Gosh, I'm really sorry, honey, I didn't mean to say those words to you. Would you please forgive me? Requires forgiveness. Willful rebellion, ongoing choice. I'm going to choose to do something else. Requires cleansing. These strongholds that occur, these bonds of chains in our lives, are often ignited and fueled by demonic influence and control, as in the case of mammon. But they can show up in a variety of forms of addictions. Sexual immorality in all its forms, alcoholism, poverty, control, lust for power, lots of others. Not only is... Iniquity, a driving force in the human soul, it is also, according to the Bible, passed down through the bloodline from the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate God. We read from Exodus 20 earlier, and the very last phrase of that says, um, 
the passage is saying, love me, don't have any other gods. And then it says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity, not the sins, the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who me. He does go on the next verse and talk about how long it, he, he blesses for thousands of generations. I'm not here to talk about that, but. In the case of Simon, back in our story from the book of Acts, though Simon was born again, baptized, following Jesus, like us, probably, I would say, filled with the Holy Spirit, this mammon spirit was still defiling his soul with the love of money and the deception of what he thought money could produce and buy. And Peter was used by God to point out to Simon Simon, there is iniquity and there is a bond of iniquity in your heart that needs to be dealt with. In summary, the purpose of the spirit of mammon is to get people to empower money with sacred value, making money their source, their provision and well-being in life. People will then love money rather than God and fear the lack of money rather than fearing God. And I would advocate that until we recognize and renounce the spirit of mammon in its ways, we can never fully experience the fullness of God and the life and the blessing that he intends for us when we walk according to his ways. Next week, I'm going to touch on, no, touch on, I'm going to teach on the ten symptoms of mammon's influence. Those uh, ten ways to identify the work of a spirit of mammon in our life. But, We've got a couple minutes, and this is what I want to do here as we conclude. I'm going to have us get into groups in just a moment, and this is how we're going to conclude this morning, groups of three or four. And I want those groups, I want you to look at uh, Luke 16, 10 through 15 as a group, and I'm going to give you some questions to consider. But before we do that, if you'd like to flip open your Bibles to 14, I'm going to do a, a machine gun context for you. It's important to see... Chapter 16, verses 10 through 15. Chapter 16, in its context of chapters 14 and 15. Quickly. Wake up, everybody. Sit up. Luke 14 opens with Jesus going to dinner at the house of a leading Pharisee. While there, he observes the pride and selfish hearts of the guests, and he tells them two parables about what kind of people matter to God. Not what kind of people God likes in the sense of who do good and are nice, and so God likes them, in the sense of people that matter to God. That's, the, that's chapter 14, the first half of it. In verse 25, um, Luke transitions to another talk Jesus gave about the cost of following him. He speaks of taking up the cross. He speaks of counting the cost. And he concludes in verse 33 with a a verse that we don't really know what much to do with. And it says, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. It's a transitionary verse. It's right in the context of Jesus talking about, right in the middle of Jesus talking about what people matter to him. Because in chapter 15, Jesus is in trouble with the religious leaders. He's hanging out with the wrong crowd and he takes the whole chapter to talk about three stories that talk again about the fact that people matter to God. God is very relational. We're into rules and regs and and actions and Jesus is into the heart and the heart about people. So we have the 
the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. These all two chapters talking about God's concern for people. And in the middle of it, the cost of discipleship and of giving down all our possessions. Then chapter 16, Jesus begins to talk about money. And he tells another story that is a little hard to understand. And we're not going to start with that material right now because I believe that we can step to the next section that's significant. Uh, there is some work that can be done on the first half of that, on that parable, but it is, it's a stretch for us when we read it in some of the English translations. But that section, talking about the um, unrighteous steward, Jesus leads into verses 10 to 15, which are the verses I want you to consider in your groups. And it says this in the New American Standard. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then our verse parallel to Matthew 6:24: No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. I would advocate this. Jesus is talking about money and our heart and what we trust in and what's important to us. And dealing with possessions. The, that's the context of all of this. I want to point out a couple things for you to recognize. The two translations there in the New American Standard, unrighteous. Um, he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous. That's the word iniquity. So, and we've suggested that iniquity is, is, is reflective of a willful rebellion in contrast to a sin. So it doesn't say he who misses the mark is going to miss the mark. It says willful rebellion representing patterns of habitual sinner strongholds are driving you. He who is willfully disobedient in a very little thing is also willfully disobedient in much. The words unrighteous wealth is probably better understood as the mammon of iniquity. Again, that same word iniquity, and this time connected with mammon, the mammon of iniquity. And then, uh, again, profoundly, compared to 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Luke identifies that the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the Jewish people, were lovers of money. Is, do, we, do we see a tension here with them as religious leaders? Do we see a tension here with uh, the reason why Jesus is making such a big deal about our heart and about what we love 
and what we trust in. So I want you guys to get into groups of three or four. We're going to take ten minutes. It's ten after ten. We're until ten, twelve twenty. And I want you to look at these uh, this section of material as a group. I want you to do some work, and I've got some questions. The very little thing Jesus refers to in verse ten. What's he? Then in relationship to verse ten. Talk about the ramifications when Jesus says, he who is willfully disobedient in a very little thing is also willfully disobedient in much. You might not get all these, but I want you to mess with it. I want you to work. You're not here just to hear me talk. I want you to work on this. You can take it home and work on it as family as well. What might Jesus mean by the mammon of iniquity? What might it look like to be faithful with the mammon of iniquity? He who is faithful with the mammon of iniquity. There's, a, there's one to work on. What were the Pharisees scoffing at? Why were they so ticked? Why were they laughing? What might Jesus be meaning when he says in verse 15, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God? Okay, get into some groups. Open your Bibles up. Take a look at the text as you have them there. And I want you to work on some of uh, this material and wrestle with it related to this issue of mammon, wealth, and riches. Those of you who are arguers and really wrestle, get together with one another. Please pause audio to complete this exercise. Okay. Well, I hope for most of you, you found that somewhat stirring. Um, Again, you know, my sharing with you for, uh, you know, 45 minutes on a Sunday morning every week is not all there is by a long shot. And I really hope and pray that you will become students of the Word of God. The book of Acts speaks of a group of Christians, the Bereans, who wrestled with, I can't remember the exact quotes, really cool, that they, they wrestled to see if these things were so as they were presented the good news. And um, I, I would thrill me to know that, not that you just want to argue or that you want to say what you think is so, but that you would wrestle to see if these things are so by going to the Word of God, getting a hold of some tools, um, asking some more uh, questions. I, I don't have all the answers for sure. I am, I'm in process on this. I am, I, Claire and I have been introduced into some new ways of thinking on these topics and I'm just attempting to share those with you and we ourselves are wrestling with them to try and implement. There's a, there's a lot more to go here. Um, it's going to take us a little longer I think to get through this material than I had, uh, than I had hoped but we'll, we'll press ahead and if you would during the week take the notes with you. Hopefully you're using the piece of paper to jot some things down. Um, I can make some of this material available if you really wanted it. Um, and uh, that you will spend time with friends and community group members and family uh, talking about what, is, what does this mean for your life? What does this mean for us? And then pay attention. Uh, your homework assignment last week was pay attention when you're out in the world to be looking for the spirit of mammon. Where, what, do you, where are you seeing it? Where are you feeling it? Where is it, what's it? What's it look like out there? And then, again, talk about that in your homes. Let's pray. Papa, I know that out of our heart of hearts, we want to please you. We want to serve you. We want to love you. We want to lead others to you. Um, but we are challenged in that we do that in the world. 
with all of the stuff of the world swirling around us and trying to entice and grab us and control and influence us and stop us from doing that. So our battle isn't against our own flesh and blood sometimes or others' flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities. It's against bonds of iniquity, entanglements that we experience, connections with demonic influence in our lives. We're we're not just alone in our uh, failures. There's an enemy of our soul that is out to kill, steal, and destroy. Our relationships, our ability to uh, care and love others, the ability to love one another. Lord, there's spirits of anger that, that stir us up, and cause us to violate one another, to harm one another. Lord, we just welcome your Holy Spirit to heal and mend, forgive. Lord, let us begin to recognize the distinctions between sin and iniquity in our hearts and to welcome you to cleanse our iniquity, to forgive our sin. Thank you for the blood of Christ, which is that which covers and cleanses. Father, stir us during the week to uh, remember you and to be thoughtful of you, to pay attention to what's happening around us and to be those who bring your love to a world that is swirling, spinning out of control. Lord, stir us in our families and our relationships to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for uh, hanging out again. and. Uh, Hope that you're being helped. Um, we, as a part of a church, always provide an opportunity at the end of our service for people who would like to talk with someone, to pray with someone. We'll have some folks here at the front. would love to do that for you. Uh, please get your kids. It's, uh, it is a little bit late. Apologize. Um, thanks for coming. Have a great week. If you want to contact me, feel free to do that by email or phone. And uh, we'll get Clara or I can get back to you. Pizza with the leaders. Those of you who are uh, guests over the last uh, few weeks or months and haven't been with us for Pizza with the Leaders, we have an event right after the service at the church apartment uh, where you can get some free food and a soda and an opportunity to ask questions, get to know us. We can get to know you. We'd love to have you with us there for that. God bless. Have a great week.